Hi, I'm Shane Safir. And I'm Alcine Mumby, and this is Street Data Pod, where we dream with you about next-generation schools that affirm, love, and value every learner. Here we have conversations about healing, hope, and listening at the margins. In season three, we are continuing to explore what does the street data model look like in action. And we are thrilled to finally have on the incredible Dr. Montessa Munoz, Director of Assessment from a suburban school district that we're going to get to learn about in detail today. Montessa is a leader that I met through the Deeper Learning Leadership Forum, which is a fellowship that I run on my my other job. And Montessa came to us, I can't remember if we were um, in Oakland, we must have been in Oakland doing liberatory design with Morgan Vienne. And she came in running with this book like, oh my gosh, I'll see (laughs) Street data, this book is so good. It aligns with what we're talking about with equity and with, because we had just finished our equity module and with um, liberatory design, which we were launching into. And I was like, oh yeah, I know her. <laughs> I know Shane. And then Montessa was telling me the ways in which she was like doing this work with her young people, which I'll let her tell the story. And I was like, hey, we should have you on the podcast. And so we've been trying to coordinate this for a couple of seasons now. Um, but we're so glad that you are with us, Montessa. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And I just can't wait to tell some stories about how um, just the great impact this book has had on students. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to hear those stories. So I'm really excited just to get to know you better in this conversation because Alcine has been glowing about you for months and months. And we always begin these pods with just personal story, story orientation, if you will. And so we'd love to know a bit about little Montessa, who you were as a young person, maybe some of your own schooling experiences and how those have shaped and informed who you are today as a leader. Yes, so I was fortunate and I was able to attend the same school district, K-12. And uh, it was a great school district. I always felt really supported. I still talked to several of the teachers that I had in elementary, middle, and high school. I really loved going to school, but I was quiet. I was a really quiet student and I didn't really say much, um, but I loved going to school, loved learning. When I got into middle school and high school, I think I became a little bit more extroverted, um, got into some leadership opportunities. I always played sports too. So I, I, just, I just always felt really supported. I, I had a great high school, pretty diverse racially, ethnically, and also socially. So it was, it was diverse. We had great opportunities. I had felt like I had teachers that were always pushing me and that believed in me. And then I think when I got into college, I had my son when I was young. I was 19. I was a freshman in college. And even in college, I had supportive. I remember one of my professors, I called and said I couldn't attend one class because my son was sick. And he's like, nope, you come in. And he had someone there to hold my son. And so I can come and attend class. And so I just, I was very fortunate. And I always felt like I had really supportive people in in education in my life. Which is, which is why I went into education, too. It's just so heartwarming to hear positive stories of 
K-12 experiences and, and even higher ed, I think we've held space for a lot of painful stories in the podcast that people had. And so it's just wonderful to hear somebody who actually went through relatively unscathed and had some folks really hold and love them as they move through. I think a major life-changing, obviously for me, was having my son so young. Just how some people treated me and not always in a positive light. And, you know, there's so much research out there, you know, especially young moms and especially young Hispanic moms. And, if you know, it's more likely that my son would grow up to be in jail or not learn how to read. And so, you know, you just have all those negative stereotypes. So, um that really reminded me um, when I was a teacher that no, had the judgment, right? I mean, we're all human and we all judge, but really to take that into consideration and to stick up for students when other educators were um, maybe judging and making assumptions of students. How was your experience as a Latina navigating predominantly white Midwestern contexts and districts especially as a teacher and as a leader, what has been most challenging or maybe even rewarding too? And what have you learned about yourself and that leadership journey? You know, I, I first became an administrator when I was in the so- Southwest. You know, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. I have to shout out Tucson, Arizona. So I first became an administrator. I was young when I first became a principal. And then, so I, I had that experience, right? Because when I came to the Midwest, I just ran into a lot of things that I just wasn't prepared for. I think the first thing is just some of the comments that people were making. I don't know if they were microaggressions. So, you know, they'd say things to me like, you just got this job because you're, they'd use the term Hispanic. Someone came up to me and said, oh, I just wanted to hear you talk to see if I could understand if you had an accent Mm -hmm. or not. (laughs) To this day, I still talk to a lot of these people, but I think it took me, yeah, it took me back a little bit. You know, referring to this book, when I read your book, Shane, is just, you know, leaning into that mindset of courage, you know, because I could have easily, you know, started doubting myself, or I could have easily started questioning, like, should I be here? But I, I just kind of just leaned into courage and, you know, coming each day. And to be honest, the more people said different little things like that to me. And it wasn't every day. I don't want to make it sound like that. And it wasn't in a mean way, but I just made me feel like, you know, this is where I'm meant to be because we have students that look just like me. I mean, some students have my same exact last name and I'm here for them. Yeah, I mean, first, just want to acknowledge how shitty that is, those experiences. Like, I don't have a fancier word other than to say I'm sorry that people suck and are so racist sometimes. And, you know, as somebody who's not in a racialized body, like, I really, really hear that. Um, the pain of those ex- those moments and the courage that you named and also just the resilience it takes to keep showing up and keep opting into this career when people, you know, don't see who you are, don't make assumptions about your brilliance. So I just wanted to say that as a colleague. And you already mentioned courage as something from the book that spoke to you. And so that could be what you talk about more in this next question, or you can go somewhere else. I think I'm curious, since it sounds like you found the book separate from your relationship with Alcine without knowing we were good friends, which is just cool. How did you first encounter Street Data And just sort of what drew you to the concepts and the framework in the book? 
It's kind of magical a little bit. So at the time, I was working as an educational consultant. The organization I worked for, we served 18 different school districts. And one of the local universities was actually hosting a book talk with the book. And so we all bought the book and we all met, I think, maybe once a month and we'd read and we'd discuss the book and I was like wow this is great it's really aligning to everything else that I was doing we were talking about equity and then I was working as an educational consultant with one of the districts I was working with uh, they wanted help with one of their strategic goals which was looking at how equitable was the education they were providing for their students I mean the whole book I found useful but really just that framework in terms of looking at it from a district view and strategic planning. The first things that really helped me explain, I'm looking at different levels of data, and I use this with board members, um, school administrators, teachers, was that levels of data, um, the satellite data, map data, street data, that really helped everyone kind of understand about how a lot of times we just use that satellite data to make decisions. And it's only a few people and it's usually not students that are involved in looking at that. And then we make these decisions for students and then it doesn't work and then we come back again the next year, right, for school improvement. So I, I was just fortunate because I was able to work with everyone from the school board to the superintendent. It was great. So what we did was we put together a dashboard for the district and it showed everything from absenteeism to participation in sports and clubs, of course, student achievement data. And then we set it up so it showed the representation in each of those areas. So is it equal representation, um, negative, positive? That was a great first place to start. Some people were just surprised at some of the data. Right. And so then right away, you know, we had we showed it to school board members and district administrators and they wanted to start making all these plans. And so I was really interested in the hack of students as consultants. I was really interested in that. And so I was reading a lot about students as consultants. We had done some data analysis protocols that uh, some of the ones from the like peeling the onion from the book and another data analysis protocol. And so I said, let's do this with students to this group of uh, district administrators. I said, I really wanna bring the satellite level data to students and let's have them go through the data analysis protocol and see what they say to learn from them. So like they're true consultants, like I'm gonna give up my power and they are gonna be the consultants. And so I'm in a district where six, it's 60, 66, 60% Hispanic. One of the people, I'll never forget this, he said, we can't show this to students. They, they can't do this analysis. They're not going to understand. They, they can't do this. So I said, no, no, we're going to do this. Just try, you come and just come and listen. And so thankfully, I had someone else in the room that said, yeah, let's try it. Hmm. We were able to try it. So I told the high, I asked the high school principal, I said, I need a group of students, and I don't want just the students that are in student council. I want a, a, you know, a diverse group of students, but all students of color. And I was like, well, you know what, this is going to be great. I kind of prepped the administrators before the students came in, and I just said, you guys can stay in here, but you're not allowed to talk. And a couple of them looked at me and I said, you sit in the back and you're not allowed to say anything. 
And it was just great <laughs> for me to say that. Nice. Felt really, really good. We kind of, I kind of set it up like a, a cross between like a Kiva and a data analysis. So I had those eight to 10 students and we gave them district-wide like attendance and student achievement. And it, you know, it was disaggregated demographically by gender. And it was amazing. These students, I mean, the, there's administrators in the back that couple of them at the end, like were crying. And it was just so amazing. And one of the, the same administrator that told me they couldn't do it, he came up to me and he's just said that those students were so articulate. They are even more articulate than some of the adult groups that I was part of. I said, yes, your babies are brilliant. And I, cause I take that from Alcine. Nice. And I said, you guys need to do more of this. And even the students came up to me, when are we going to do this again? And I think one of the biggest stories, one of the girls, she just said, I feel like I have to work twice as hard to be heard. And another thing that came out, which was something we had already discussed too, was about AP classes, because anybody can um, take an AP class in this district. They're all paid for but they just don't have the same percentage of students of color as white. Mm -hmm. One of the students said, well, no one's ever asked me, no one ever told me that they believe in me that I can do that. So standing out to me right now is, and I've had this experience too in facilitating Kivas, is how much the experience itself is agentic for young people. So there's this young woman, Caitlin, that I'm actually going to be facilitating with in her district near Vancouver in a couple of weeks. And she, I originally met her on a panel in Vancouver of Indigenous students from that district. And I remember her voice quivering and tears and all the things. But afterwards, when I went up to her and was like, how did that feel? She was like, I feel so powerful. I've never felt this powerful in my life. And then that created this relationship, which I sounds like you have with those kids too, where we've stayed connected. And now she's working in that district as an Indigenous support worker. And now she's facilitating with me. And so just how much the, the experience can cultivate that deep sense of agency and power in, in young people. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. What you're sharing sounds so simple, but it is so high leverage and impactful for transformation. Not just change, like you weren't just trying to tinker at things. This book is one about how do you transform what is happening in schools and in classrooms so that it better serves kids and the students that we most often don't listen to. And so I just want to ask, what were some big insights for you that you gleaned from implementing this or anything else? When I book? started talking about this book and some of these strategies with this team that I was working with, they said right away, oh, yeah, we survey students and yeah, we talk to them, you know, and we go around and we talk to each school and then we bring that back. But this it's this book, it's so much more than that. Very easy to use. And it just helps anyone just give students that voice and you're going to get that deeper those impactful solutions instead of just kind of doing what we always do every year where we survey students and look at that data. It's so much richer, that street level data. So we now know that you are the director of assessment in your district and assessment is Alcine, one of her great expertise areas. I'm way less of an expert in it. I would love to hear about your kind of vision and to quote our friend and co-author Dr. J, your radical dreams for assessment. 
Um, what would what would assessment look like? Systemic or school wide assessments that really center the whole child and really cultivate student voice and agency. Actually, I was just working with a group of educators this last uh, couple of nights, and it was around collaboration skills. And so one of the activities I had them do was they had to list out all the different data sources they had on their students, like every single data source that they had available to them that they could use to make decisions. And then we talked about um, triangulating data, how important it is to have, you know, observational data, product data, and like interview, interview kind of type data. And so then what I had them do is after they went back to their list and they had to code which type of data source, you know, what it was, was it, is it observational data? Like, you know, maybe an office referral might be an observation that they record and, or is it a product? Like most of it was either observational or product data. And so the one that's least used is where you just listen to students. They had nothing on their list. They, there's just nothing on their list. And so, I mean, a couple of the elementary ones had something, but it was more like listening to them say their letters or sounds, right? And so we talked about that. And I was like, you know, why is that? That is like one of the, you know, major prongs when we're triangulating data. And we just don't use that. And so a lot of teachers talk to me about, you know, time, you know, time to collect that, what that looks like, or even time for teachers to get together to collaborate to maybe create some resources so that they're collecting that data kind of in the same way to plan for collecting that data. So I guess to answer your question, what my vision right now is to involve students to get their voice into a balanced assessment system. And it also sounds like you're doing the other thing that I love to do around assessment, which is democratize it a little bit, right? Like these are these are actually pretty technical things that you're doing with staff, right? You can do that because you're pretty skilled and expertise in, in, in data. That's why you're a director of assessment and you know how to actually move around data. But data is scary, as you know, for teachers, right? Because often the ways in which the data is used, which is punitive or to say that you're not good enough, and then the data that's the, how we describe the students, right? Like all the things, it's not a very positive, fuzz, fuzzy, warm feeling kind of way of thinking about data or even navigating data. So what I also hear you saying that you want to do is you also want to kind of break down those walls between educators collecting data and actually using data to inform what they do in classrooms. And um, so you're democratizing it in a lot of ways, right? Like you're saying, okay, I can have that knowledge myself as a director of assessment and I've gone to school and I have a PhD in this thing and blah, 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 blah. But really it doesn't matter if the knowledge doesn't live with those closest to implementing because the teachers are the ones that hopefully would be sitting with students and listening to them and collecting that data. And I just want to name, and you probably have heard me say this. I know you've heard me say this, Montessa, but the root word for assessment comes from the Latin word Asidere, which means to sit beside. So if in your assessment practices, you are not doing what uh, Dr. Montessa is saying, like 
How are you sitting beside the learners and really understanding how they are moving through this learning experience, not just cognitively, but also the social and the emotional components of it? Then you're missing so much of what assessment truly is. So I love that you're like teaching adults how to do that work with kiddos. And even just giving them permission to do it. I think sometimes they think the only data they should be using is student achievement and it needs to be, you know, quantitative. Yes, there's a place for that, but I think it's overused. I have to say, I really love and would ask your permission to borrow this pedagogy of list all the sources of data. And then you had them code it a certain way I didn't quite catch, but then maybe having them sort by satellite map and street and then sort within street by story artifact observation that's such a great constructivist activity i'm like why haven't i thought of that oh yeah that would be helpful and then just to go along with that list that's in the book of all the different ways to collect street data that i mean that's where we got that listening campaign from also because i guess i didn't even talk about that part but we did conduct a listening campaign with parents um, and i brought district administrators with me parents students staff administrators so and we asked everyone the kind of the same questions but we did that also it's just it's a great list of ideas and ways to collect that street data so glad you guys are making me think of um do you know the author ruth ozeki either of you her latest book is called the book of form and emptiness and it's essentially about lots of things but one theme is like animism and how objects are alive And just listening to this conversation, I keep thinking about how it really does feel like giving birth when you write a book, but it's like the same way we release our children into the world, right? Khalil Gibran, our children are not our own. Like we release them from the bow. It feels like that with this book. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't belong to me in the best way. Like it's just living its own like life out there, you know, engaging with people. And that just feels like such a gift. So thank you for sharing. Our good friend here, of course, you know her last name means scribe, right? So she's she's writing. She's writing some more. And she's doing this really interesting project, which she can share a little bit more about on her next book. Like it's also going to feel different and look different um, in some really beautiful and radical ways. And so she's working on, a, on her next book project, which is about cultivating a pedagogy of student voice that engenders student agency, right? So we know that you are well-skilled in that. Probably that always happened in your classroom. But I'm curious, from a leadership perspective and lens, what do you see are the critical conditions, um, structures, processes, ways of being that leaders have to embody in order to help teachers embrace a pedagogy of student voice they have to let go of that idea and i've talked about this already before that the only good data out there is quantitative data or the only thing that gets done is what gets measured that kind of idea and i think leaders need to let go of the idea too that students don't know what they need I've heard a lot of leaders talk about that, like why would we ask the students they don't know or how would they know? Students are so incredibly brilliant. I I mean, who else would we talk to? We're here for them. So really changing, I think, that way of being in that mindset to see students as, like what you described, someone that's sitting next to me and we're doing this work together instead of I'm doing something onto someone else. And then in terms of helping teachers too, to be honest, I think most teachers would love to, to do this, would love to include their students in more ways. I think it's just 
What does that look like? I know a lot of teachers like examples, you know, of what that looks like or, you know, some templates to use, being able to have teachers and tell their stories or, you know, really building other teachers up that are doing it well and, you know, asking, can we video them and can we share their story? So I think leaders need to be looking for that and really um, allow that space for that collaboration. It's such a great answer. And I love how none of it is like buy a new curriculum, you know, like find the new lesson planning template. Like we spend so much time on that, you know, so much time on that. And yet what you're describing is so much more an epistemology. It's a way of being and it's a way of seeing and understanding our role. Um, It's really profound. Yeah. And I also kind of heard in there, I mean, I'm going to add to this radical dream chain a little bit. My, I actually started, when I first started teaching, I was involved in this research project with NYU, and it was actually with the organization I used to work with. And they were like, great, you'll be one of our teachers because you have a live classroom. And what it was was action research. They had had, um, observed, we did these observations to your point, Montessa, we went into different schools as, as teachers or participants, we went into different schools, observed different teachers' classrooms, and we distilled what were some best practices that we saw that were really impacting students' ability to like analyze literature, to, to write well, to do all the things that we were in charge of doing as ELA teachers in high school. And then we got a list of like these high leverage ones, you know, the researchers went back and kind of ranked them out of, I don't know how they did that. And then we were charged with actually implementing some of those practices in our classrooms and collecting and you know, organizing and collecting pre and post data for a unit of study where we were going to deeply learn how to apply one of these practices. And so one of the things that I think would also help with pedagogy of voice is to think about like what are some of the um, high leverage instructional strategies that, re- that teachers can, can utilize and then have them do action research. Right? Like have them collect the, collect the data and, and have kids be able to tell their stories. And I just think that that's another way of empowering folks that we think don't know <laughs> with actually crafting the, the pedagogy. This question is arising for me, for both of you, which is, so the equity transformation cycle in the book, right, always begins with listening, listening at the margins, and then uncovering what's there, reimagining. And so like new pedagogical moves in that cycle would would normally situate and reimagine. Like you listen first, you uncover what the street data says, and then you start to reimagine. But when Alcine was talking, I was kind of wondering if there's a way as a teacher, you're making decisions every day. Like you have to have your pedag- you have to have your stuff together. So I wonder if there's a way to refigure it a little bit where you're like, I'm gonna try this pedagogical shift. And then I'm going to go listen and gather data. I'm going to uncover what it says. And then I'm going to reimagine how I did it. But it's a little bit less agnostic. It's like, I'm going to start with something from the book. And I wonder if you guys think that, does that violate the integrity of the process if you approach it that way? No, I think that's part of the conversation we had last night with educators. We were talking about hinge point questions and, you know, we should ask questions throughout as you're teaching. And then we started talking about, yeah, but how many of these questions that we ask, kind of like as a formative assessment, have to do with product? Like it's usually thumbs up, thumbs down or something you write on a whiteboard. Why can't it be something that has to do with conversation? And then so then you kind of know where to go with your lesson. 
why don't we just listen to their voice? Our, our colleague, Dong Feng, was so, Dong Feng. oh my gosh, she was so brilliant and getting the kids to do real engaging scientific inquiry or inquiry period. Like I remember she had them do a project where they had to like get a bunch of data points on something. And then the kids had to apply statistical practices to figure out, to answer a set of questions that they were curious around. And each practice led to a different answer according to their data set. And so the kids were able to really kind of understand these concepts. And I would watch her go around the room and it was never around like, what was your answer? Why did you choose? Or what's the, why, why might using this statistical analysis be more beneficial than using a different one? And so the kids would be like, oh, I can tell you because when I looked at my data around cars, this was the outcome. But when I looked at it from this statistical thing on cars, this was the outcome. And that would actually convince buyers to purchase this car over this car. I mean, it was, it was, and these are kids that people thought like didn't have high level math skills or even literacy skills to be able to engage in those conversations, but they were deeply curious. And so she was just surfacing a bunch of their questions around things that were relevant. All right, Dr. Munoz, we like to close with the lightning round. We're going to alternate the questions. We have five questions and the invitation is to try to answer in 10 seconds or less. Question one, you're called to listen deeply to someone, but what they have to say is triggering. What is the first thing you do? I try to take a deep breath and recognize what my face is doing and truly do pause, pause, paraphrase, and then pose some questions. So I'm really am listening to understand and not just listen to respond. Nice. I often forget the chase, the, the face check part of that because my face was like, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what is a practice or way of being that keeps you grounded in this struggle for educational justice? I'm just going to bring it back to students, all the students that I've had in my class and the stories I've been told and just some of the students when I was a principal that dressed up for Halloween as a principal because they wanted to be a principal like me because they look like me you know just those stories it just I you know keep keep them in a journal and that's what keeps me grounded and it's it's really easy to stay grounded when you have stories like that that is everything I know all right number three what is one form of street data you believe every educator should gather Listening to students and and not just listening to them, but including them, including their voice in all levels of problem solving, all levels of school improvement and making sure they have a seat at that table. Because you're a director of assessment, you can actually go down a little bit of a rabbit hole on this one. What is a type of data that you feel is overused? I think uh, statewide assessments that are needed for accountability are overused. just think a lot of uh, educators and sometimes they feel like they have to but they feel like that's the only data source that's the only reason that they're in the classroom is to make sure students meet that and just overuse and it's really not the place for it it shouldn't really even get to the classroom level there's so many other sources of data you know like our students formative assessments that are going to make have a greater impact on student achievement you heard it from a director of assessment y'all 
this don't use that stop bringing that data into teachers and putting it before them right like like no that's not the level it's supposed to be used at oh i love that answer i love that too that was fantastic all right this is our final one montessa a great learning experience will please complete that sentence a great learning experience will cause you to ask more questions that's a good one i don't think we've i don't even think we've heard that answer before which seems so like Oh, that's so good. That's a mantra for the next book. That's great. That's right. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Montessa, for being here, for finally getting us to hear your beautiful stories. Because we have to reschedule this Joker like several times. So we are so glad it finally, the stars aligned. It was so worth it. Yeah, this is amazing. I feel very inspired. And I feel the book is so alive and in such good hands in your hands, especially just being used for the purposes it was written for. Thank you. I just want to say thank you too, just for this space right here. Um, And it's really not for me, it's to tell stories of students and how that book has impacted those students. And so just thank you for that space. And just thank you for the book. Uh, It's just so incredibly, incredibly helpful. Even to this day, I I use it, you know, for me to keep that uh, mindset of courage with a variety of stakeholders. And it's it's just been a great resource to have and to fall back on. Well, we are standing behind you and we are standing alongside you as you continue to use it. And don't hesitate to reach out if we can be, if I can be useful to you in any way. Hey, Street Data Pod, we'd love to hear your street data stories and questions. So just leave us a voicemail at 415-335-9997 or send an email to streetdatapod at gmail.com. That's streetdatapod at gmail.com. We may even feature your voicemail or question on a future episode. Street Data is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. Our senior producer is Zoe Morgan, and our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe as well for social media support, and a special shout out to Shane's former student, Rocky Rivera, for our theme music. If you want to get a copy of Street Data, visit Amazon, Corwin Press, or better yet, a local independent or Black-owned bookstore. At Corwin's website, use discount code STREETDATA, all caps, to get 20% off. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time. Oh, I get giddy over assessment. <laughs> you know, it's so sexy.